Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, I missed being with you last week. Um, I was preaching at a church in Winfield, Alabama. Uh, no worries, I was not preaching in view of a call. And if I ever had a chance to be their pastor, I lost it last week. Because uh, I've made way too many Alabama Crimson Tide jokes and insults. Uh, they did not appreciate when I said that I come from the state of the reigning national champions, Louisiana State University Tigers. They did not appreciate that because, yeah, I said 2020 really didn't count. And so we're still reigning champions. So wasn't as appreciated. I think y'all appreciated it way more than they did. So, uh, yeah, I lost that opportunity. Um, I want to give you just one update, just to kind of show you uh, how the Lord answers prayers. Uh, Brandon, would you throw that picture up for us? Uh, you can see that is the uh, V. Dale Lee. Um, praise God, Dale has gone home and is recovering uh, nicely. He's going to milk it for all it's worth. Uh, as y'all know, the man flu is way worse than the woman flu. Uh, it, it just it hurts worse, and so the man COVID is way worse than the woman COVID. But um, yeah, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And uh, just thankful that um, Adele and Joanna and Josh have, have all recovered. And uh, I think it is just a testimony to God's provision in their lives and prayers. Uh, we still uh, would like to mention a, a couple others to you that we still continue to be in prayer for. Is um, Castillo's, Penny Castillo has, uh, is. Uh, healing and recover, but continue to pray for George as he still uh, recovers from COVID. And uh, then also pray, continue to pray for Kim Smith's mom, Nancy, who was recently diagnosed with, uh, with COVID. And, uh, and as Jim mentioned, uh, Diddy Thomas, Diane Thomas's brother, Pete, died uh, yesterday. And so uh, please keep them in your thoughts and your prayers. Uh, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, looking at verses 1 through 18. And the title of this sermon is called Rights, Recompense, and Relinquishment. Um, and what we'll be discussing today is paying pastors. And you're like, yeah, it works out nice for you, Wes. You get to preach a sermon on paying pastors. And you're right, it does. Um, but I don't, I, don't get to pick, I don't get to pick the scriptures. The scriptures pick me. And uh, in the sense of we work through books of the Bible, and this is just where we're at. Uh, paying pastors. And so... Uh, this is where we've gotten our course of study in 1 Corinthians, and so uh, we'll continue on. So, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 18. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Verse 1 says this, Am I not free? Am I not apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. 
Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel." For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if I not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? This is God's word. You may be seated. Um, here's a phrase that I hope you never have to hear in your life. It's called the Miranda rights, uh, which you may, may be familiar with. Hope, hopefully you'll not, never have to have your Miranda rights read to you. Um, But if you do, it's going to start off like this. You have the right to what? Remain silent. You have the right to remain silent. Anything can be used in a quarrel, blah, 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 blah. And then it ends with this. With these rights in mind, do you wish to speak to me? And so when you're giving or being read your Miranda rights, uh, you can remain silent. You have that right to remain silent. But it doesn't mean that you have to remain silent, right? You have the right to, but it doesn't mean you have to remain silent. You can surrender that right and speak to the police officer who is reading your Miranda rights off. That's if you so choose. Well, this is somewhat what is going on in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 18, is that you have a right and you have the choice to surrender the right if you so wish to. And from last week's sermon, what Shane did from 1 Corinthians 8, which I would recommend everybody go back and listen, it's a wonderful sermon. Uh, this, in chapter 9, is a continuation of chapter 8. And what's happening is this, is that at times we relinquish the rights that we have for the sake of something else. And Paul now uses his own life as an example of one who has the right to something, but actually surrenders it for the good of something else, or for the good of someone else. And so, to illustrate 1 Corinthians 8, what we covered last week, is that Paul relinquishes his right to financial support from the churches, from particularly the Corinthian church, for the sake to eliminate any potential obstacle that could get in the way of the gospel of Christ and his preaching. And so this relinquishing of rights for the sake of others and for the gospel, Paul says this, it's in order that his life of relinquishing a right may be an example to us that we follow in our own life. And so ultimately, the main thesis of, main point of the sermon is this. Paul is worthy of and has the right to receive financial support from the church. But he relinquishes that right for the sake of the gospel. This is point number one. Paul's right to financial support. And this is what we'll see 
in verses 1 through 12 here. Paul's right to financial support. I told the story about a year ago when Piper Smith was being baptized here. Uh, when Piper was younger, uh, she was talking with Kim Smith, which is her mom. And uh, she says, Mom, what, is, what does Wes do? And uh, she says, well, he works at the church. And, and she's like, no, 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 what does he do? And she's like, well, he, he, he does this with the youth, and he, does, you know, he preaches. He does, he does she's like, no, 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 what does he do? Like, for money. Like, what's his job? Like, that's like a hobby to him, right? And she's like, no. That, no, he, he gets paid to minister. She's like, Oh, he gets paid to do that? I thought that was just kind of like a side thing, like a side gig, a hustle of some form. I don't know. And, and it, it just, it, it, you know, for her, it didn't, it didn't comprehend that, you know, ministers, you know, do get, uh, do, do get recompense. They do get paid for what they do for ministering. And what Ken was trying to get, a, get across to her is this, is that he makes his living from ministering the gospel. Now, I know many of you have probably thought the same question that Piper said, what does Wes actually do? And uh, so may, maybe, I, I'll, uh, maybe it's a valid question. But what she was trying to get across to Piper is that he makes his living off ministering the gospel. And that is what Paul is trying to get at here in these first 12 verses, and we'll specifically say it in verse 14. But it's, it is right that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Meaning, is that those who have given themselves over to the ministry of the word, is that, like Paul, should be recompensed for that. The church should financially support those things. And so what Paul's going to do in these first 12 verses is he's going to give some reasoning behind that, about why he is deserving and worthy of support, financial support from the churches. And the first thing that he's going to look at is this. If you look in the first two verses... He's going to say, here's the first reason. It's because consider my own ministry to you. Consider my own ministry to you. And so Paul is bringing up his credentials and his resume to show why he is worthy of support from the Corinthians. Is that he proves himself, he's proved himself to be an apostle, right? Is that, I, am I not an apostle? Uh, for crying out loud, I've seen the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, right? Yeah. And so he's saying, this is, all, this is who I am, this is my credentials, this is my resume. And if anything, if you need any more, you know, uh, evidence of this, is that look at yourselves. Look at yourselves. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? He says, look at the ministry that I've had among you. Look at the fruit that has been produced in your own lives, Corinthians. So this is the very reason that, that this is the reason for financial support. Is that look at what, look at what has been done in you by the Lord through the work of my ministry. He says, basically, you are the evidence. And Paul uses the same reasoning in other letters, in like 2 Corinthians 3, when they're asking him, hey, uh, hey, Paul, we think you need to kind of like prove to us like that you're a real minister. You need to prove to us that you're a real apostle. And you know what he says to him in 2 Corinthians 3? He says this, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Basically, like, you got to show us the papers that you're a real apostle. And here's what Paul says this. You, Corinthians, yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be read in a Bible. You want a resume? You want credentials? You, you want a letter of recommendation? You are it. You are it. 
And so this is how he's making his argument for financial sports. Like, look at the work that God has done in your lives through my ministry. And it's only by the Lord. If anyone deserves financial support, wouldn't it be Paul? Right? Wouldn't it be Paul? And so Paul moves on. He says, okay, my resume should speak to that. And next is this. Look at everyday life and people who work and people who labor. Look at the real life experience. He says he begins to bring up different people and talk about the different rights starting in verse 3 that people have. You know, you have all these rights, but me and Barnabas, we don't get these rights as well. And then he brings up different vocations, different jobs. Look at the soldier. Look at the planter. Look at the shepherd. And you know what's all similar about all these, all these vocations, all these jobs? Is that they get to enjoy the produce of their labor. They get to enjoy the produce of their labor. Like any other job, Paul says ministers should be financially supported for their labor. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? He's saying, in all these other jobs, and all these other vocations, and all these other, all these other labors, they, they get to enjoy the produce of what they're working for and what they're working on. So he says, everybody else is like this. Why wouldn't a minister be the same way? Tom Schreiner says it really well. He says this, Paul's argument is that what applies in the natural sphere and in the ordinary spheres of life also applies to the spiritual sphere. So if the shepherd receives his, his wages, if the thresher, the planter receives his wages, if the soldier receives his wages for his labor, why would I, Paul, the minister of the gospel, not receive wages for my labor as well? And so he uses his own ministry resume, and he uses everyday life to support financially supporting pastors. And the third one is this. He says, if you need any more evidence of this, doesn't the Scriptures say it as well? Look at what he says in verse 8 through 12. He says, do I say these things on human authority? Okay, Corinthians, you may be thinking I'm making all this up in my own head, trying to like probe you to get... Hey, give me my money kind of thing. You know, you may be thinking, oh man, Paul, you're just greedy, man. You're just, trying to, you're just trying to rile us up and get money out of us and things like that. Paul's saying, okay, wait. If you won't believe me about my own ministry resume, if you won't believe me about everyday life experience, believe this. The Old Testament scriptures say, provide for, provide for your ministers. And so this is what Paul does. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, to make his point. He says this, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, some of you may be thinking, Doesn't, isn't this just speaking to animals? Why, why is Paul quoting this weird verse from Deuteronomy 25? It sounds like he's speaking about oxen, animals, things like that. Well, it is in Deuteronomy 25. But in Deuteronomy 25, the larger context is this. It's speaking about the well-being and the flourishing of human beings. That's what Deuteronomy 25 is. So it's larger context is that it's speaking about the well-being and the support and flourishing of human beings. And so he's going from an argument, if you follow this, from lesser to greater. Lesser to greater. If the ox deserves his wages for his labor... Why would not a human being made in the image of God not deserve his wages for his labor? You see that? Lesser to greater? 
If an ox, an animal deserves it, why wouldn't a human being, a minister of the gospel, deserve it? He moves from lesser to greater. And what's interesting is this, and if you want to write this verse down, it might be on your paper as well. But Paul makes this, he quotes the same verse in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 through 18 again. Same verse from Deuteronomy 25. But in this context, when he's speaking about elders and about ministers, he also takes the quote from Deuteronomy 25, and then he takes a quote from Jesus in Luke 10, 7, and he puts them together. He says, not only does the Old Testament say it, but even Jesus says it. Listen to what it says in 1 Timothy. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. Okay, Deuteronomy 25. And the laborer deserves his wages. That's Deuteronomy and that's Jesus. And so Paul brings together these two quotes to say, okay, if you're going to disregard my ministry resume, if you're going to disregard everyday life, then don't disregard what the Scriptures and the Savior says. That those who minister and preach and teach are worthy of compensation for their work of the Gospel. And so, I think one application that we can think through is this. Is that a faithful pastor is worth financial support. And on behalf of my family, I can speak from personal experiences that Crosspoint doesn't have a problem or an issue with this, of financially supporting their pastors. Crosspoint Baptist Church is very, very generous with their pastors. And I thank you for that. And on behalf of my family, I want to thank you for your generosity in supporting our family in the five years of ministry that we've had here. It's hard to preach a text like this to a body of people that do this well, that do this well. And so thank you. Thank you. But when it comes to, and I hope that this continues to be the pattern until the Lord returns, but when it comes to paying pastors, I think there's four potential dangers that we could run into as a church when it comes to paying pastors. And so I want to highlight four of them for you. I, I only gave you three on your sheet, and then one came to my mind this morning. So you won't have that one. But what is this? Here's one danger I think we could run into as it pertains to financially supporting pastors. Is that sometimes we can become bargain hunters. Sure, he's lesser quality, but he's so cheap. He's so cheap, we can get him for dirt nothing. Yeah, he's not the greatest this, he's not this, he's not this, he's lesser quality here, his theology's kind of soft and, and, uh, and, and wavy, but he's so cheap. We can get them for next to nothing. Treating them like a used car. Right? The, the church shouldn't lower scriptural expectations and qualifications just to save a dollar. Let me just say that one more time. The church, when we're looking for a pastor, should not lower scriptural expectations or qualifications just to save a dollar. You get what you pay for. Is what some people can say. Second is this. Cheapskates. Cheapskates. Some of us are cheapskates. What's McKay included? We'll, we will do whatever we can not to pay the full amount for something, right? We'll do, you'll do whatever you can. And sometimes we might get into this when we talk about paying pastors in the church. Is that we can be cheapskates as well. 
is that we will do whatever we can not to pay a pastor what he needs. We'll lowball him, right? We'll lowball him. We'll offer a deceptively, and this has happened in churches, and so I'm saying this from, this is experience. Offering a deceptively or unrealistically low amount of money. You know, he needs $40,000 to provide for his family. But you know what? We're going we're gonna to give him just twenty, And he'll just have to eat rice and beans for the rest of his life. You know? What I think we need to remember is this. The church should not be stingy. The church should not be stingy when we financially support pastors. Just to be a cheapskate, just to save a dollar. Third is this. Is that the church should be wary of being bargain hunters, being cheapskates, but we also need to be on the lookout for greedy pastors. I want you to flip over real quick for me to 1 Peter chapter 5. And it actually warns us about these kind of guys who do ministry just for the sake of money. They do ministry just for the sake of money, just to make money. And this is a danger. And it's actually a disqualification when you look at the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3. Is that the person should not be a lover of money. But particularly when it comes to somebody who's shepherding the flock of God. Is that we need to be wary and beware of guys who are just trying to make money in this. Look at what 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 says. Talking about elders and pastors. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain. Not for shameful gain. Is that this is warning us, Crosspoint, is that there are men out there that use the platform of pastor in the pulpit just to build their bank accounts. And the ministry of the gospel is not building a bank account. It's about advancing the gospel. And so we need to be on the lookout for greedy men who try and take over churches and take over pulpits just to make money. Just to make money. And so we need to be aware of being bargain hunters. We need to be aware of, of being cheapskates. We need to be aware of, of, uh, of greedy pastors. But we also need to be aware of this, Crosspoint. And I think this is a greater danger. Is that we need to be aware that we can... We can walk too slowly into being business-minded when it comes to the church. Is that when we discuss financially supporting pastors and things like that, it can begin to sound like the church is a business. And that the relationship between the minister and the congregation, it shouldn't be viewed as the pastor is the salesman. The gospel is the product. The congregation is the consumer and the tithe is the payment for services rendered. This perspective makes the church sound nothing more than a commercial business. And when we begin to think like this, the danger of seeing the church as a business is that we will begin to see other churches as competitors who we need to squash in order to succeed in this market rather than see them as brothers and sisters in Christ who are pursuing the same great commission as we are is that we'll begin to see the gospel. If we take on this business mindset when it comes to church, we'll see other churches as competitors, and we'll see the gospel as a product that needs to be enhanced, that needs to be updated, that needs to be improved upon in order to attract more customers. And let me just say this. The gospel needs no improvements. We don't need to make it more relevant. We don't need to make it more enticing. It already is by itself. 
And when we begin to think that the church is a business, we will take the gospel, we will do whatever we can to manipulate it just to draw more customers. That's what the church's business does. You'll see the congregation, if you take on this business mindset to the church, you will see the congregation as customers whose only job is to consume and never produce anything. And then we'll, if we take on this business mindset, we will just see ministry as a sales pitch. A sales pitch where every tactic should be used in order to attract people and sell your product to the largest amount of consumers. This is what a business-minded church looks like. And it is a danger. It is a danger. Yes, the church receives money. Yes, the church pays people. There are similarities between the organization of the church and the business. Sure. But at its very core, the church is not a business. It is not. The church is God's people saved by God's grace, sent out by God on God's mission to share and serve the good news to God's world. That is what the church is. And if we lose sight of this, if we lose sight of this, we will look no different from the world. And we will make God to be a power-hungry, money-hungry CEO. And the church will be nothing more than an enterprise or a business venture. The church is not a business. It's not. And so when we begin to talk about these discussions about paying people, paying pastors and things like that, we have to be very careful here with these four things. Bargain hunters, sheepskates, greedy pastors, and being business-minded. And this is what I think Paul wants to bring out for us, is that yes, it is right and it is good for churches to financially to support their pastors. But for reasons much larger than Paul, Paul decides differently. He decides to forego financial compensation for his ministry here. And this is what is at the heart of his instruction. This is point number two. Is that, yes, Paul has the right to financial support, but Paul relinquishes his right to financial support. This is verses 12 through 18. You know, we all use that phrase. Maybe we use it with our kids, maybe grandkids, or maybe anybody else. Do as I say and what? Not as I do. Hey, look, listen to everything I'm saying. Take it in, but don't watch me because I don't do anything what I just said. Right? I don't live by my word. So do as I say, not as I do, right? Do as I say, not as I do. Well, this is not the, this is not the approach that Paul takes to financial support, right? Paul doesn't instruct them to relinquish their rights while he tightly holds on to his rights. No. But actually, the point is this, what we're going to see in 12 through 18, is for the sake of gospel advancement, for the sake of not putting any obstacle in the way of the gospel, Paul relinquishes his rights to financial support in the life of the church of Corinth. That's what he does. Look at this, verse 12. He says this, Nevertheless, it's a big word right there. He said everything I just said in verses 1 through 12 about how it's right for a pastor to be supported by the church, it's good, it's what the scriptures say, look at everyday life experience. Nevertheless, regardless of everything I just said, I relinquish that right. I surrender that right. Verse 15, he says the same thing. But I have made no use of any of these rights. 
So he says, just to be clear, I've not taken advantage of those rights that I have to be financially supportive of you. I've, I actually surrender those things. And then he goes on, and he says this, he's relinquished rights. Then he goes on to pour, add more fuel to the fire. Look at what he does. He says, not only is it everyday life, but it's even people who are in ministry, the people who minister in the temple. So he's used all these examples of soldiers, of planters, of, of, uh, uh, of all these other people. And now he uses an Old Testament example in the priest. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? He's saying, look, it's not just everyday examples. It's even people who serve in the temple. They get their wages there. And so, again, he comes back to this in verse 14. In the same way the Lord commanded, based on what he said in Matthew 10.10 10 and Luke 10.7, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. They should be supported in their ministry. And just to be clear, Paul does acknowledge in other places that he does receive financial support from churches. He's just particularly here in Corinth, he's deciding not to receive financial support from Corinth. If you want to write this one down in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7-15, through 15, he says, look, I've, I've, I've foregone uh, financial support from you, but I've actually received financial support from the Macedonians. They've supported my ministry, and they're, they're the way and the reason I can continue to, uh, continue to minister. And so Paul's not saying that in every situation he has foregone all uh, compensation, all financial support from all churches. No, he's just saying particularly here in Corinth, I'm, I'm surrendering that right to financial support from you, Corinthians. But he has received it in other places. He declines financial support from Corinth. But why? Why does he do that? Why? Well, he says in verse 12, he would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So it was for the sake, their sake, and for the benefit of others, and for the sake of the gospel, that he foregoes financial support. We've seen situations where people have, in the betterment of the larger majority, they've surrendered something. You know, you think about Japan surrendered to the Allied powers. You think, man, they had to make a decision right there saying for the good of our country, you know, that we can potentially rebuild. We need to surrender in this moment and, and say we're done. It's over. You think about Nixon's resignation, whether whatever, uh, both, you know, assumedly we're done for the good of the country's well-being, is that he made comments and said, I'm, I'm resigning for the good of the country that we can move on. I will resign from my position of power. And so we see these instances in world history, where people surrender because of the betterment of the people around them, for the betterment of the majority, for something bigger than themselves. And this is what Paul is saying. Yes, it's right for me to receive financial support, but for, but for the sake of the gospel, for your own benefit, I'm going to forego that right. It was for their sake, he believes. He doesn't detail out what obstacle it could have been. What, how could receiving financial support from the Corinthians create an obstacle for him? Well, you can only make speculations at this point. Maybe it's because he's trying to distinguish himself from these false apostles that you see particularly in 2 Corinthians that were greedy men and they were trying to always get money from, uh, from different churches for their ministries. And Paul's saying, look, I'm going to distinguish myself from them and just say, you ain't got to pay me. You ain't got to financially support me. It's okay. 
So maybe it was to distinguish himself. Maybe it was to show his, his great desire and genuine love for the Corinthians to say, look, this, I, I don't want this to get in the way of me sharing and ministering to you. So I, I, I'm, I'm going to forgo that right. Or maybe it was he didn't want to put a burden on them in that time of need. Maybe there was something going on in Corinth that they, maybe, maybe they couldn't financially support him in some case. And so he's going to say, That's, let's not make that a problem here. Let's not make that an issue. But whatever the reason, regardless of the financial support from the Corinthians, Paul says, I'm constrained and compelled to preach the gospel. Regardless of financial support, whatever that may look like, I'm constrained and compelled to share the gospel. Financial support is not going to keep him from his call to preach and the gospel and his passion for the gospel. I don't know if you've ever made, played a joke on somebody who has OCD, or maybe you have OCD, but that you, you take something maybe in their home or maybe, you know, maybe in their office, and you just put it just a couple, you know, you start moving stuff around. And they walk in, they go into like a conniption. Like they're, like, you know, they're having a seizure on the ground everything's out of place, like, and they, they start, you know, and they can't, you know, the OCD people, which I'm speaking, because I am, this is me, worst case, worst, you know, fear of mine is to come into my office and everything's rearranged, um, please don't do that, <laughs> I just told y'all my worst nightmare, that's what you don't do, tell people your worst nightmare, but, um, but they're so driven by their OCD, they, they can't just walk out and continue on with life, right? They, they, they can't just be fine with it. What do they got to do? They got to go in, they, they got to rearrange everything, put everything back in place. You know, if it, they, they cannot just say, oh, that's nice, somebody rearranged my office, and just walk back out. No, it's, it's something is inside of them that just like, I can't live. I got, I got to put everything back in place. They feel so compelled, they feel so urged to, to rearrange things back into their proper place. And this is the way I feel like that Paul is trying to describe this thing, is that regardless of financial support, there is something in me that burns so deeply, that is compelling to me so much, that I have to preach the gospel to you, regardless of what you pay, of, regardless of your financial support. The power of the gospel to save and transform people Man, it is irresistible to Paul. His passion to share the gospel, it's irresistible. It's uncontrollable. It is overwhelming. It's untamable. And that he has to share the gospel with them. So much so that he says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If you remember those woe passages in the Old Testament, Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. What is he saying to himself? Woe to me. If I were to just not do it because I'm not being financially supported, woe to me. You feel the depth and the, the gravity of that? Paul says, man, it's not even possible for me to just say, you know what, not being financially supported, I'm just not going to give my time or energy into this thing anymore. Woe to me if I ever go down that road and say I'm not going to preach the gospel anymore. Paul doesn't have this you can't afford me attitude. He says, I have this attitude of, I can't help but tell you this gospel. It reminds many commentators have brought this up before, but it's reminiscent of what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 20. He says this in verse 9, If I say, I will not mention him, speaking of Yahweh, so Jeremiah speaking of Yahweh, when 
I believe in the context, he's been told not to, not to tell of disaster and ruin and God's judgment on Israel. He says, if I say I will not mention Yahweh or speak any more in his name, prophesy, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. You hear what Jeremiah's saying? You know, you're telling me not to say anything about Yahweh. You're telling me not to prophesy. You're telling me all these things, and I'm sorry, just can't. It's burning so deeply inside of me. I, 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 you, withholding it in is going to make me explode. I have to share with you this. And this is what Paul is saying here, is that regardless of financial support, there's something that is burning so deeply inside of Paul, that being the passionate and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it, it just has to come out of him. Regardless of financial support, that is not going to keep him back from his passion. And so I just ask us this, Cross Point. Do we have such passion in our own lives for this gospel? And if not, why so? This passion where it is burning inside of us to share. Where is it? Does this gospel and what it has done to transform our own lives, does it burn in our bones inside of us? That what God has done in Christ Jesus to save us wretched sinners from death and hell, and that Christ himself has laid aside his own rights and died on our behalf. What greater news that sinners can be made right with God through Christ Jesus. And that message should burn in our bones where we have to share it. Where we have to. And so I just ask this. Where is our passion? Do we have it? And if we don't, let's begin asking the question, why don't I have this passion? Like Paul, it says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Where is our own passions? Second, I want, want to bring this up to you, is, this, is that you see Paul, is that he has all these freedoms and all these rights that he has in Christ Jesus. There is a wealth of freedom and right in, in being in Christ Jesus. Yet for the sake of other people, particularly the sake of Corinth, he says, I will forego that right for your sake. And I wonder with us in here, with the freedoms and the rights that we that we have, I'm not speaking politically right now, I'm speaking spiritually right now, is that the freedoms and the rights that we have in Christ Jesus, the things that we can do in Christ Jesus with a clear conscience, is that are we willing to potentially surrender some of those rights, surrender some of those freedoms for the sake of somebody else? So that we don't create an obstacle or a stumbling block for somebody else? Yes, you may have the right to go see this. Yes, you may have the right to go do that. Yes, you may have the right to, to do this in your own life. But let me just ask you this. Have we considered, for the sake of another person in their own conscience, maybe we forgo that right and that freedom in order that we not create a stumbling block for them in the gospel? Or are we not going to take a hit like that? 
No, man, I have all these rights. I have all these freedoms. I shouldn't have to forego anything for anybody else in this world. I should live it up to its fullest. Experience every freedom and every right that I have in Christ Jesus. Who cares how it affects other people? Who cares what other people think? Who cares what other obstacles may be put into their way? I'm going to hold on to these rights as tightly as possible, these freedoms. I'm going to experience life to the fullest. They'll just have to get over it. I'm not going to refrain or even consider self-control for the sake of someone else. And if that is our thinking and approach in this life, in this, this walk with Christ, if we think, look, I have all these freedoms and rights in Christ Jesus, I'm not going to forgo, surrender, refrain from something for the sake of somebody else, for their own good and for their own growth and for their own, uh, their own sanctification. If you say, I- I'm just not going to do that. That's not going to be my... It's not going to be my life. I'm not going to refrain from have self-control for other people. I'm not going to forego and surrender rights that I have. Then I would say this. If that is our thinking, then we must be better than Jesus. If that is our thinking, that I have these rights and I have these freedoms and I will not surrender for anybody else and for their good, then here's what we are saying. I am better than Jesus. Because as Shane brought up to you last week, the one who was deserving of all rights and the one who had all the rights for our sake laid down his right. Say that again. The one who was deserving of all right and who had all right for our sake laid down his right for our sake. 2 Corinthians 8 says that he who was rich, that being Christ Jesus, he who was rich became poor so that we who, would, who, we who were poor would become rich in Christ Jesus. The rich became poor so that the poor would be rich in him. That is the surrendering and the foregoing of rights and freedoms for the sake of somebody else. This is what Jesus did in the gospel. It's what Paul says again. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Though he was in the form of God, having all rights, having all privileges, having all freedoms, yet, yet, he did not count equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage, but he laid it down for our sake. Brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, are you willing to surrender rights, surrender freedoms for the sake of another brother so that they would not have an obstacle or a stumbling block in their way in Christ Jesus. I would just ask you to consider this question. Am I right now in my life, am I putting an obstacle in someone's way, in their way of knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Am I creating a stumbling block by something I'm doing, by some way I'm living, so that it is hindering somebody from coming to the gospel because this is not what Christ has done for us 
if you're an unbeliever here this morning, know this. That Jesus had everything, but He gave up everything for your sake. To give you everything. Everything you need, which is not money, which is not power, which is not fame. But to give you righteousness. That the righteous came and took on our unrighteousness on Himself. That we may become righteous in Him. This morning, Jesus has given up Himself for you. And this morning, you can come to Him and receive the riches and the freedoms and the rights that are in Christ Jesus. But for us Christians, remember this. Is that we need to be guarded against thinking about the church as a business and reminding ourselves that we are a group of people that God has brought together by the Spirit of God indwelling in us through the gospel of Jesus Christ to now proclaim the gospel to the world. And yes, there are matters of money involved in those things, but that does not make us ultimately a business. It makes us a, a group of people who are wretched sinners and saved by God's grace, now sent out to God's world with God's message. And secondly, consider this cross point. Are we in any way creating obstacles for people when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us in the gospel. I pray, God, that you would help us, that you would open up our eyes to see if there are ways in which we are creating obstacles for people, stumbling blocks for people when it comes to the gospel. I pray that God, our church body, would be stirred in our hearts, in our bones, to be motivated, compelled to share the good, glorious news of the gospel of Jesus with people. That it burns in our bones, that it overwhelms us so that it must come out of our mouths. God, make us a church, God, that we are passionate about this gospel that we talk about so much and learn about so much. God, thank you for sending Christ who gave up his rights and freedoms for us that we could find true freedom in him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.